Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary. This week I spoke with Jeremy Gilbert. Jeremy is a professor of cultural and political theory at the University of East London. He's author of 21st Century Socialism and his latest book, Hegemony Now, How Big Tech and Wall Street Won the World, is out next year. Now that Apple's... I nearly called the podcast Apple Skins. <laughs> I like that. I like Apple Skins. Now that our podcast <laughs> Apple Skins is helpfully and conveniently on Apple Podcasts, please leave a review there. It helps us and we will read them out. Have I got one to read out now then? Yeah, and a bit after that there's... If we go after the comments on Sebastian Younger, then there's a little review. Wow. Now, if you don't, if this is the first time you're listening to our podcast, <laughs> that the voice you've just heard, that's a glitch. A glitch has gone no. into the system. There's Jenny. <laughs> um, okay. By the way, so let me just tell you about um, Jeremy Gilbert. Jeremy Gilbert was friends with Mark Fisher. Mark Fisher wrote Capitalist Realism. He, Capitalist Realism, uh, Mark Fisher's book, I did the audio book for it. It's a lovely book. You should uh, listen to it. You can listen to that audio book. It's me reading it. It's enjoyable. And what Mark Fisher is, is like, I guess, like Jeremy, was a cultural and political theorist, probably at the same university. But he also stuck up for me when I was getting involved in politics. So I love him. Plus, he makes a lot of um, like somewhat esoteric ideas accessible and uses a lot of pop cultural references when explaining the sort of malaise and emotional um, concomitant factors around political, I don't know, apathy. So anyway, I spoke to Jeremy because I knew he was an ally and collaborator with uh, Mark and we talk a lot about, it's a good conversation, we'll enjoy it, we talk about revivifying the left and we talk about the mainly, I guess, the main thrust of the conversation is talking about how you can have localised parallel movements that are focused on radicalism in addition to using the conventional existing means of political reform. What do you think of it then, Django? Yeah, it's very political. Yeah. <laughs> it just reminds me of how hard politics is. So hard to do it's, politics. I don't know. <sighs> Too boring to do My politics? My mum thought I was going to huh? get into politics. Your mum? Yeah, she's like, you should join the Irish Green Party. Go on, Jen. What, would you do? what did your mum want you I was to... really into like climate change when I was 10. You could have been the Irish Greta Thunberg. Yeah, and then I, yeah. but then I got bored of it and everyone was really into it. <laughs> The problem is, Jen, you you got bored of it, do you? The problem is, is that you, what was good is you would have been the first Greta Thunberg because there wouldn't have been Greta Thunberg yeah, yet. I could have, should have done it, but no one really cared about it then. You, it's not too the, late. There was no. I am a lot older than her. Doesn't matter. Well, you could just never mention that. Just sit outside, isn't it, in Sweden or wherever, and uh, you know, really <laughs> just sit outside, sit outside and just say this is enough of this. She's done some good stuff. All right, listen, here's some, com here's some comments on the Sebastian Junger podcast. Now time for comments. Chuck.O'Neill, nice discussion. We spoke to um, the writer of the book Tribe, Sebastian Junger, last week. Nice discussion, gave me a new frame of mind for how I encounter people with opposing views. Recognise now your emotions can play into the way you shape your worldview. It's both useful and necessary in a world that seems too divided. Hope these concepts start to peel out, spill out into the wider consciousness. They will, Chuck. Have I done enough banter on you yet? Banter decanter. You just said... In a way, I said you... Should be Greta, Greta Thunberg. Thunberg. Can be banter. Yeah. Crazy Texas Adventure says, As a libertarian, this was a refreshing conversation. Thank you, libertarian, for joining us. Contempt for those who disagree is a huge issue. I think it starts in the media and is filtered down to communities and neighbours. So that's where I would completely revamp, in addition to the suggestions mentioned here. It's good, mate, isn't it? We're talking about proper discussion, proper solutions. We're really tackling a wide range of issues and trying to our best to popularise them. We're really trying to create a little movement, aren't we, Jen? 
Yeah. Cult, would you call it? Yeah. I think you'd prefer a cult, wouldn't you? Well, yes, I think so. Uh, obviously, it's got to be well run. Yeah. I've got a family now, so I need to be in So a, you can't do it. Well, I can, but the family will have to come, and they're very much against it. Speak <laughs> to the ones that, you know, understand cult, which, by which I mean my wife. She says it's not the right thing to do. You mean because people are being all weird and worshipy? I like that. So that, for me, is one of the best aspects of it. But she says it's not healthy for the old ego. And I no. think, like... <laughs> I also quite, I'm quite private. You know yeah, what I mean? you don't like being around people for too long. No, only little bursts of yeah. being around people. When we're around each other, it's just sit in silence. Absolute silence, Jen. Yeah. It's the only way I can stand you. <laughs> okay, so um, should we do the listener shout-outs? You do the, put, jing, put the jingle in after. Oh. oh <laughs> listener shout-outs. Oh, what a racket. <laughs> it was like, oh, that was like a carooming gunfire. Oh. No, it's nice. Well done, Justin. Yeah. Thank you. M- Mikhail Piech. Well, I like this name. Hold on. Piechotka. Piechotka. But I wanted to say Piechotka. Yeah, that's better. Piechotka. You are doing a great job with your interviews under the skin, as well as with individual interpretations. I really enjoy it, especially connected with your sense of humor. Good luck and keep going. Really valuable. Sending you best regards from Warsaw, Poland. I like to think of someone there in Warsaw listening to me. All right, mate. Thanks, Mikhail. Jesus Piękna. I know that's how you say it to a woman, but... Yeah. What? I don't know why I was so confused by that. Jesus Piękna. <laughs> uh, maybe because it's just for a woman. Jesus Piękna. Well, oh, it just means is you're beautiful. Is it like Mastravia Cheers or something? Nah, this is Jesus Piękna. That's your beautiful, that. Uh. All right. Now then, let's get on with the podcast and listen to Jeremy Gilbert. And if Jeremy or his family are listening to this, I'm sorry you had to listen to Jenny May Finn and I talking in that off-the-cuff, unhelpful fashion. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not a successful route. Yes, that's, that, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand. Under the Skin. Jeremy Gilbert, thanks for joining me on Under the Skin. Well, thanks very much for having me. It's really an honour. Oh, that's really kind of you to say so. The reason I wanted to talk to you is because I've like have been a fan for a long time of Mark Fisher. And I actually think I was a fan of him. I can't well, I can't remember the order, but I know that Mark Fisher stuck up for me a lot when I like got involved in British politics about seven or eight years ago, just at least what we would probably properly be called just punditry and commentary, really, although there was some activism around a few particular specific and I would say local issues, like housing estate and stuff. And I, and I went on the TV to talk about a few things. And I just like I at some point or another read Mark Fisher's advocacy and support for what I was doing. And I felt like really emboldened and encouraged by it. And like when I'd heard that it taken his own life um yeah i felt really d- dismayed you know like sort of obviously i didn't know him but like we've say david foster wallace or when you think people that are clever in their own lives you think oh no that's not good that's not good um i, I know that he was uh, uh someone that you collaborated with and worked with so just but given that that's the point of contact i wondered if you talk about mark some yeah well i mean it's you know, it was obviously, it was a great loss. I mean, we were, we were quite close and it took quite a long time to get over. Um, 
And Mark, he was a really unique figure in sort of British and, and then really international um, sort of political culture and wider culture over the past few decades. He was one of really, there isn't really anyone else you can compare him to in terms of popularising a set of ideas about, you know, making a radical critique of ordinary assumptions in contemporary culture and the way they get reproduced in media culture, the way, the way they relate to power relationships in a way that had been going on in universities um, throughout that, you know, for, for decades. But the, I think to a large extent, the practice of doing that kind of intellectual work had really lost contact with any sort of audience outside of you know, people who were studying at university. And Mark, you know, partly through his blogging and then through his writing of his, um, you know, his very accessible books, he was really able to popularise to some extent the whole idea of sort of radical theory and a certain kind of radical cultural criticism to for a much bigger audience, for a, for a whole audience who just didn't really have any other contact with it. Uh, and that was, a, you know, it was a huge achievement and he was, sort of, he was the only person who, who could have done it, I think. And I think, um, you know, I think sometimes... I think some, you know, there is also, I mean, sometimes, you know, it's problematic whenever like one figure ends up being the person who everybody associates with what's really a whole sort of intellectual tradition. So like, there is there is a sort of audience out there, I think, who sort of think Mark invented the idea of ideology critique, which is, you know, it, which is paradoxical because what he was always working against was, you know, any sort of an individualist or sort of author-obsessed conception of culture or ideas, but that's testament to the power of his, his ability to popularise radical ideas, I think. Um, and, but he was also, you know, I think the other thing that really touched people was obviously really, um, you know, and a really important part of his work. And it was, you know, he suffered, he, he, he suffered, you know, quite badly from, from, depre from clinical depression and, and he wrote about that very movingly and he tried to put that experience in a historical, a social, sort of intellectual context in a way that I think a lot of people found, a lot of people could relate to, a lot of people found very empowering. And um, I think, and I think that was also, but, you know, it also meant that it was, you know, he, he struggled, you know, he, he struggled, he struggled with, his, with life a lot of the time, he struggled and he struggled with the sort of status he he. he he often seemed to feel like he'd, he'd sort of wandered into this you know, hero status to a whole a huge audience around the world. And, you know, at times it really buoyed him up, but at times it weighed down on him and it found him, and, you know, he, he struggled with it at times, I would say. Where do you see your work, that you your continuing and ongoing work as being related to the work that you did with mark do you think that just do you obviously you must have shared numerous perspectives i'm sure there are areas we disagreed like anybody but um where do you find yourself now what are the, the the what areas of public and political and i suppose cultural life interest you most now what are you writing about what are you thinking about and how, how does that relate to these areas of um the where you connected with mark fisher the thing I've been working on most recently is a book that's um, going to be published by Verso next year, uh, which I've been writing with Alex Williams, who's someone who I met through Mark, actually. And um, the book is called Hegemony Now, like um, 
how Silicon Valley won the world, how Wall Street and Silicon Valley won the world and how we win it back. So, and I guess it is, you know, like Mark's work, it's an attempt to sort of understand like what is the current shape of power relations in the world? Like, who is it who really holds power? How do they exercise it? How does that shape the wider culture and society that we live in? And, and, uh, and to some extent, you know, what, what can we do about it? How we can intervene in it? So that's the most, that's the sort of most recent project and that, you know, and, um, but also over the past few years, I, I guess, you know, the things I've been, I mean, my own sort of intellectual interests have sort of overlapped a lot with, with Marx in the sense that, as I said, we're both really committed to sort of neoliberal political culture, neoliberal, wider neoliberal culture, and, and particular forms of individualism, particularly the ways in which the idea that, um, the basic unit of experience, if you like, is the individual rather than, and, and the individual not conceived as a social being, um, per, pervades our culture and, and in and so many of our institutions and, and so much of our political culture. And I've de- I've always been, you know, committed to trying to work against that in various ways. And that's definitely that was a big. Um, that, yeah, that was certainly a big uh, impetus for Mark as well. Well, Jeremy, I wanted to ask you what you like. Well, that's a sort of a, a powerful idea and an idea that it overrides and goes beyond the conventional divisions that we see when trying to understand, um, let's say, the political sphere where we might look at it from a, a socialist or capitalist like, you know we don't like we don't t- although obviously socialism embedded in the idea of socialism is our ideas of community and communitarianism um but where can you tell me please how this idea of individualism pervades both of those ideologies uh, and how it, it is dangerous and why it's harmful to us i mean when i when i talk about individualism what I mean is is not just the idea that well everybody is unique and everybody's uniqueness is important. It's the idea that well what it is that makes everyone unique is something that's completely separate from everybody else, something that's completely private to them, something that's completely sort of interior. If you see what I mean. Whereas from my point of view, like everybody's unique, but what makes everybody unique is the the precise way in which they relate to all the people around them and the way in which they everybody is everybody is sort of constituted by their social relations you know the way i always illustrate this when i'm saying to people is like well the basic assumption of individualism is the idea and this is a here i think you'll hear people say all the time in one form or another the idea that you come into the world alone uh to which my response is always well, you you obviously don't right <laughs> you clearly don't there's always at least one other person there (laughs) and and in fact there's always like a whole load of people there uh, before you before you waiting for you and and who will make you who you are from day one and so the idea and so on on a basic just on a functional level like never mind sort of politics you know the uh, the an individualist way of thinking about the world just doesn't actually work It, it doesn't speak to the truth of the human experience the truth of the human experience is well it's difficult to communicate with each other sometimes that our experiences are all different from each other, but they're, they're different because of the complexity of our social relationships, not because of just something that's private to us. And I, so mm. 
I've got a bunch of things that I just want to inject into it. But as you yeah, as you continue, for, forgive me interrupting. One thing I think of is uh, like uh, Carlo Rovelli said when he came on here that um, on the quantum level, nothing can be said to exist at all other than in relationship. Like at the exactly. most the most fundamental. Yeah, not you know, to, even to use the term unit is misleading also Jarvis Cocker once said without people we're nothing who are you yeah. if you're not in relationship with other people and then to, to sort of uh, advance the idea yeah, hopefully like the uh, is this do you think a subset of materialistic rationalism and like sort of post enlightenment thinking the idea that if you know because when you said that thing you know you're not born alone you, there's a, there's a, 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 a there are parents I hope at least one as you say hopefully more and but it, and also you are, it's only from a particular materialistic and indeed individualistic perspective that you would see yourself as anything other than an ongoing expression of a spatial evolutionary movement, a point of attention, a single node in an ongoing net of consciousness that is across, all, across time and across our species. And that, that if you're prevented from experiencing that or at least being offered that framing life becomes a sort of dispiriting and as you say interior yeah well, well i completely agree um you know uh, i mean the book i wrote about this in most detail is a book from a few years ago now called common ground and one of the terms i use in there is, is infinite relationality infinite infinite relate uh, everything that exists really exists in a condition of infinite relationality everything is related to everything else and, and there's no limit to it there's no way of even knowing what the limit will be to uh, our relationality relationality is this term, big term in you know some strands of philosophy and things like critical geography and it it can't just mean sort of be sort of banal it just means well everything's related to everything else like so what and I, what i try to do in that book is think is think like yeah or well, so what <laughs> you know it's important pretty much pretty much for the reasons you just set out actually that on the one hand i do think yeah it, it, it just causes a lot of ordinary unhappiness i mean this isn't a new idea i mean you can trace this back idea through sort of buddhism sort of vedic illusion of the ego just makes people miserable that's the first problem with it basically and because um, it just doesn't work, you know, you go out into the world trying to relate to people on those terms. It just doesn't. You just it's like you've got the wrong manual. Mm. It doesn't work. It just doesn't work. But also politically, of course, it, it's linked. It links up with ideas like the idea that, you know, the most important thing in the world for the state to do is to guard individual freedom. But of course, what individual freedom really means is the freedom to own stuff and and to do whatever you want with your property, like, rather than to be able to collaborate with other people in meaningful ways, for example. And I think that, um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I agree about, I mean, that the idea at the quantum level, nothing really exists, there's only relations. Yeah, that is really powerful. And, and part of my thinking is, is about trying to think analogously about people, actually, in sort of social relations. I mean, one of the, one of my big influences is a not very well-known figure in sort of English-speaking world or anywhere really is a French philosopher, uh, Georges Simondon. And in the 60s, he he was writing about some of these issues. And, you know, he he tries to, he presents a vision of sort of sort of reality in which relation, you know, the, there's a field, there's a world of relations and, and relations somehow precede the things which they relate. The relations exist before the things exist. Uh, and it sounds very abstract, uh, um, except that that's exactly what uh, the person you're referring to was talking about the sort of quantum level 
And it's also just a way of saying, well, in a way, you know, the when you're born, as I was saying earlier, the social relationships that you're born into are there before you, if you like, uh, and they will make you who you who that they will make you who you are. And yeah, that quote from Jarvis Cocker. I mean, that quote from Jarvis Cocker, I sort of love really because it um, to me that really relates to the concept of freedom. You know, one way I have of always talking about this issue is to say the the very con the con freedom is a really important concept to me. You know, I'm a socialist, I'm a libertarian socialist, and I believe in freedom. But what I don't believe, I don't believe that the concept of individual freedom that people trot out as a sort of cliche actually means anything, because precisely for that reason, because I mean, what does it what does it mean to be free as an individual? I mean, what can you actually do only as an individual? Well, there's two. The only what can you the only thing you can do purely on your own as an individual, as a human being, is sit in a corner and, and masturbate until you starve to death. <laughs> that's it. That's all you can do. <laughs> I did it for five years. <laughs> <laughs> How did it go for you? <laughs> I became quite lonely and depleted. <laughs> you know? So that's <clears throat> so, and I think that is. Um, and so, so even freedom, which we usually think, we, we tend to think of in our culture today, we think of freedom as often meaning freedom from things, freedom from dependence on other people or other things. It's really a sort of meaningless concept, except in the context of being free to form relationships, you know, being free to, to do things with other people. Like whether, that, you know, whether that relationship is just you know, lost as long as it takes to go down the pub with someone or whether that is you know is a lifelong collaboration you know to build a company or build an institution or whatever it's all relationships and the this was the the, the basic form of individualism that I, that I see myself as opposed to is one that is constantly sort of denying that and it i mean it and i think i think one way of i mean one way of understanding this we're talking in quite abstract terms but I think one way of understanding that is to look at the way in which certain ideological agendas have been imposed, say, on the school system over the past few decades, such that, I mean, government is constantly has been putting pressure on teachers and schools and the curriculum and students and parents over the past 30 years to basically buy into a particular vision of education. And that vision of education is this. What is education for is to prepare you to go and compete with everyone else in the labour market. It's not to prepare you to be a happy human being or to be able to collaborate with other people or to fulfill, you know, to find your best self, you know, in, in cooperation with others. It's to go out and compete. Everybody hates it. Like, you know, kids don't spontaneously, you know, want to all compete with each other. You know, sometimes they do and under specific circumstances, but they want to be able to collaborate. Students and teachers don't spontaneously think of it. I mean, the model of the relationship between student and teachers that fits with this ideology is teachers are like people who are selling something to the students and parents, and they're probably trying to rip them off. And so you need things like league tables and standardised testing and competition between schools to make sure those like those like cheeky teachers aren't or aren't aren't just being lazy and ripping off the students because who they who they who they're thought of as being people who are like retaining something to the students the students and parents are thought of as consumers you know they're customers they're buying a service now, everybody hates this because everybody can see that's not how it works the education is clearly a basically collaborative process it's a cooperative process mm. teachers parents students have to cooperate to get the outcomes that people really want which is an enhancement in the understanding of the world and life on the part of students 
But so government and government, but governments, you know, neoliberal governments uh, have had this kind of agenda for the past 30 years. And they've been constantly trying to impose it and they impose all these mechanisms that even in my experience, even sort of a lot of, sort of Tory voters like see a lot of these mechanisms like the school league tables and like the endless, the obsession with competition. They see them as weird and arbitrary and just not really helping anybody. And um, part of my project is always just to try is to explain to people well, where is this stuff coming from? Like, where is it coming from? Well, it's partly coming from the fact that at least the people making those policies have bought into this vision of the world, this kind of hellish vision of the world, where actually the natural state for human beings, or maybe not in the natural state, but the best possible state, is to, for us to be constantly competing with each other, constantly in competition, because and that's because. And that comes down to the idea that the basic unit of experience in the world is the, is the individual in competition with other individuals. So it's really against all that that, that I'm con- I see myself as trying to make these arguments. I can see how I've personally imbibed that ideology and actioned it and lived it. I can see how cultural and social systems are set up to invisibly inveigle you into that way of being when i think of the experience of becoming a famous person and how that kind of fortifies fortified me in a kind of unconscious egocentrism and that how and even the the masturbation joke that we both enjoyed a little while ago in a sense is a is a a kind of analogous to that experience of celebrity that you that it becomes an an experience of total immersion and it's very difficult to find a way out because you're not provided with a context a lot of the stuff that i enjoyed about Mark's work was how he made it visible to us that we were that, that there was a context that, that, that this isn't absolute reality it's just we're having a trouble imagining alternatives because part of what the system does is strips the possibility of alternatives from you and masks the unnaturalness of the experience and forecloses on the possibility of alternatives the I just wouldn't have had an idea presented to me around, unless you experience it, unless you, by happenstance, you live in a community or you have elders or you have shared purpose or the kind of what I would now regard as um, sort of practical spiritual experiences of what a community is and what how the individual and the community are in relationship and can't not be, and that that is positive and fruitful. Those. Those ideas, I don't see them well presented very often. I see them as either antiquated or diffuse or anomalous or odd or backward or suspicious. And like you say, that the natural default models are underwritten by the ubiquity of consumerism and commodity like oh teachers are sort of as you said sort of like selling you this thing that you could like the, the, the idea that this it could but that there could be another archetype deployed seems um it's not something that we even consider yeah well i think that's right and yeah mark as you say i mean mark's you know mark sort of brilliantly showed you know how that stuff was being how those ideas were being reproduced in things like reality TV and indeed schools policies and what have you at the time when he wrote, especially when, you know, at the end of the sort of 2010s. Um, I think it's, you know, it's, I think it's, you know, it's always worth 
important to remember that this stuff, in some ways, this stuff is relatively recent. You know, it's relatively recent. So, you know, I always say to students, and they're sort of amazed when I say it. Like when I was, I went to school. I went to school in the eighties, and um, I sat one exam that was like nationally mandated. When I was well, I didn't sat any until I was sixteen. You know, that was it. Yeah, there weren't any kind of nationally mandated standardized tests. And, and this was the golden age of the comprehensive. And we used to be told, we used to be told about the bad old days of the 11 plus in the grammar schools, like it was kids being sent down mines. Uh, we used to be told like this was a bad thing that used to happen in the past. Like imagine doing that. Imagine making school selective. Imagine making everyone compete with each other. Imagine making little kids sit exams and stuff, you know, before they're even teenagers. Like we used to be told about that, like it was, you know, something you couldn't, you know, the, uh, the something from the bad old days that would never come back. And I remember, you know, when I went to, when I first went to university, there were people then who had a sort of, um, there were people there were always people who were really, especially sort of people from quite privileged backgrounds, actually, who were very cynical about the whole thing. And they just wanted to go and study law or something in order to become rich. They wanted to go get jobs in the city. But that was all considered a bit embarrassing. You know, you weren't supposed to admit it. Like if you wanted to go study something at university, you were, you were, it was a social expectation that you would express some actual passion and interest in the subject. Now, these days, that's all that's completely, you know, that is now treated as pathological. Like students are told the only the only thing that should matter is whether you get a good salary at the end of it. I mean, the, the universities are now subject to these league tables where the key thing they measure is just graduate incomes, like how rich you are if, if you go to that university. So, and all this completely different value system, which is all based on this idea that that is all education is for, is competing in the labour market, is you know, ultimately generating profits for, for companies and getting rewarded for it. That's all only, that's relatively recent. I think, Mark, and now Mark, I mean, Mark is Mark's sort of analysis of how that was um, being imposed, like, was really sort of, um, is really, really sort of important. But I think also in historical terms, the moment when he did that was the moment when he, it both reached a sort of maximum of pervasiveness, if you like, and people were really getting frustrated with it. But it was also starting to unravel. I mean, I think, I think, I mean, I think a lot, I would say a lot more people are kind of conscious of the problems with all that stuff now than they were 10 years ago, partly because of people like Mark, actually, but partly because partly after the 2008 financial crisis, you know, you, you just can't be offered, especially younger people, just aren't offered the rewards for going along with it anymore. You know, used to mean for in the kind of gold, the, the real golden age of this, you know, neoliberal ideology, I think was really the sort of 90s and the early 2000s. And I think, um, you know, during that time, you know, people, if you basically, and this is sort of, you know, if you were sort of my generation, basically, if you went along with it, you could get rewarded, whether that was by becoming a big celebrity or whether that was just becoming getting quite a you know a relatively easy job uh in you know and getting a house and this sort of thing but i think it's important it is always important to remember that well as well as i think this stuff has been sort of unraveling over the past few years i it, it was relatively recent like it wasn't always like this and that was one of the things mark really did want people to understand that it do, not only it doesn't have to be like this but it wasn't even like this sort of really 30 years ago and it it can definitely not be like that again like if we, you know, if we if we want to work together to change things, what do you think needs to happen in particular to left wing politics? And if you can, I know there are 
pretty vivid differences between our country and America. But if you can sort of touch upon if there's ever been a comparable left wing movement in, the, in America, even. But like, could could you uh, touch upon that? I know that you sort of are pretty experienced around sort of Corbyn and the Labour Party in this country. And I just wondered what you'd say. Are there sort of is the responsibility of the of the left? Well, I would say the first thing, I mean, the first thing I, I, I always say when I'm asked this question is, is again, is putting this in a historical context. Uh, in both Britain and America, there basically wasn't a left for 30 years. I mean, I was grew up, I was a sort of theoretical lefty and I came from a left-wing family, but the, the, anything you could identify as the left having any effect on mainstream politics was just not a thing like throughout my adult life, basically. I mean, it, I think, you know, the the Labour Party and the Democrats were led by people who wouldn't even describe themselves as on the left in any meaningful sense during that time. And um, and the left was just considered sort of redundant. I mean, that was how Corbyn, you know, snuck onto the ballot paper because uh, he, he got nominated by a bunch of right-wing MPs who thought he was just a bit of a laugh, basically, you know, because they assumed that the left was totally dead forever. And the same was true in the States. And since 2015, you know, the emergence of Ber the movement around Bernie Sanders, the movement around Corbyn, there has been an actual something like a political left uh, in those countries again. It's not to say there weren't kind of protest movements, you know, I, there was like, you know, the, and stuff. I mean, I was involved in things like Reclaim the Streets and the various, you know, the uh, anti-globalisation movement, but you know, I remember sometime around 2005, I got studied by some Italian sociologists as an activist in the British anti-capitalist movement. And they got really annoyed with me because I said, look, it's, there's really not a movement. There's like 300 people and we all know each other. Like, it's not, that's not a movement. It's just, it's, it's just a bunch of people doing, doing stuff. And then, um, so since 2015, you know, there really is, you know, there's a left again. Uh, in, in, it suffered some sort of setback, you know, I would say suffered some, sort of partial defeat in the states when bernie didn't get the nomination but you know he's had a significant impact on the biden administration i'd say we suffered a worse defeat in this country but at least having a left that can get defeated is better than not having a left at all really and i would say the lesson of those past few so I, I was, well the reason i'm saying all that is just to say well apart from anything else i mean i know right now especially in deep in the pandemic with a sort of with a government, especially in this country, which is almost just sort of comically bad, you know, you just, you know, you couldn't, we couldn't have believed Boris Johnson was going to become the prime minister sort of 10 years ago. Then people are very sort of despondent. But I think in a bigger historical framework, like from a political perspective, I, I think things are not 15 years ago when it just, which is the moment the mark came out of really, when it just looked like there was just no possibility of imagining a sort of political left. The question, but that's not, none of that is answering your question. Like, what is what's the what does the left sort of need to do? Well, I mean, the the trouble. I mean, the left is always in a tricky position because basically, what the left always needs to do at any moment in history, if it wants to be successful, and again, this is sort of one of the themes now. Book coming out next year, hegemony now. What the book, what the left needs to do to be successful is it needs to build as broad a coalition as it can. It needs to bring in as many people and and and, and overlook as many sort of superficial differences between different political outlooks and cultural outlooks as possible. But it also, and then it has to it has to define that coalition against something. It does have to be able to say, look the reason people should join our coalition is because we're going to fix something and we're going to fix something in a way that these other people will not fix it. 
So that's in really general terms. I would say, and I would say, you know, in this country, for example, I'm, you know, I'm a big, I'm a, you know, a member of the Labour Party. I'm a sort of lifelong member of the Labour Party and see myself as on the Labour left, but I'm also a big advocate for what's called the Progressive Alliance, you know, the idea that Greens and Liberal Democrats and even sort of nationalist parties, et cetera, should, and also, you know, sort of civil society organisations, protest organisations should all be working together. Um, and I think we should be working together because on the base, you know, because of the simple fact, not just because it's nice to work together and over the differences, but because, look, we live in a country where the Tories have won literally 80% of elections for the past 100 years. Like something's got to be, you've got, when you're in that situation, you need all the allies you can get. You need to be, uh, you know, I, I mean, I think I, my line to people on the left who are often sceptical about this idea, they're very sceptical about the idea that you would ever you know collaborate with liberal democrats for example my line is look when you're in the position we're in you've you you need all the allies you can get and you need to find a way to make allies out of people so that's at a sort of you know broad strategic level i think um i think i think the most i think we do have a problem and again this is something people really don't like me saying for reasons i understand but we've got a specific problem in this country um, which is that the Labour Party, you know, I think the the sort of main bureaucracy of the of the Labour Party and a big chunk of the Parliamentary Party are people who ultimately don't really care whether we ever have a Labour government or not, as long as they get to keep the jobs they've got at the moment. They really don't care. They what the, the thing the job they signed up for was to be the sort of permanent opposition and maybe form a government one day, but as long as it's a government that's not really going to have to do anything. Well, they're definitely not up for is like a big conflict with capitalist power. Problem is, we've, we're facing a set of issues now, not just in this country, but globally, most obviously climate change, but massive inequality, massive sort of health inequalities, which there's just no way of solving without a big confrontation with capitalist power. Like it's not happening. We're not fixing those things without reducing the power of at least some of the capitalist class, you know, in very significantly in ways they're going to push back against and going to say, no, we don't want our power reduced, thank you. We're going to use our newspapers and we're going to use our companies, going to use everything we can to stop that power being reduced. So if you've got a bunch of professional politicians who are supposed to be representing the sort of progressive and left force in this country, but their attitude is, well... Mm yeah we'll make reforms if we can mm. but we're never getting into a fight with capitalists ever yeah. then they're, they're a problem then they're an obstruction and how that plays out in terms of british politics today in terms of the labor parties to be honest like you've got a situation where right now the labor party is being led by someone and a bunch of people who seem to just they're more interested in attacking the left attacking corbyn and his supporters and they are in even attacking the tories because basically that's how they think about their interests. They're ultimately, those people, are, they are, they're, they're acting rationally in their own interests. They're acting because they're more bothered about the fact, that, you know, a lot of those people got very worried during the Corbyn years that some, these, you know, that local, that, they're, that they're, they would lose their jobs to supporters of Corbyn and people on the left, you know, and they didn't want that to happen. And, they're, and now they're sort of entrenching themselves. And I would say to people, if you want to do something about that, it's not very inspiring. It's not very exciting. It's not very sort of aesthetically pleasing. But, you know, one of the things you can do about that is uh, have a Labour Party membership card and, and vote for left candidates occasionally in, in national executive committee elections and what have you. Um, and, um, 
you know, uh, I would add, I, I would definitely advise people to get on the mailing list for Momentum, uh, the, the left-wing organisation in the party, whether they would want to um, join it or not is up to them. But being on the mailing list, they'll at least find out what the, what the sort of internal arguments are. I understand completely why people find all that really uninspiring. And like I find it uninspiring, like it's boring. Like I would rather be doing, I would rather be doing sort of street protest. I'd rather be doing community organising. I'd rather be doing trade union organising. And all of that stuff is massively important. But in this country at the moment, I think that group of people, that sort of the, the right-wing bureaucracy of the Labour Party, the right-wing section of the PLP, they're like a little pile of bricks in the road that you can't drive over, you can't drive past. Like They are really small, you know, you can't, they're really small. There are much bigger issues to think about, but, and they're dirty and nobody even wants to go and touch them. No, people would rather stay away from them. They're dirty, smelly bricks. But unless somebody goes and picks them up and moves them out of the way, we're not going to be able to get anywhere. So that is a, so, so that is a part of, that is part of what I would say. I think, I've, but I also think, you know, I think there's, I think people, I would say, we do really need to keep the left what the left needs to keep doing and i think listeners to this show will find this really predictable them saying this so this is sort of why i didn't say it earlier but you know we need to keep we need to keep proselytizing we need to keep ex- colleagues or friends and neighbors you know what is you know the scale of the climate crisis and the extent to which the climate crisis just can't really be separated from questions of, of inequality and questions of power relationships this is what i'm concerned about deeply like I spoke to Marianne Williamson on here, like who I was really, I was really interested in her campaign for the Democratic nomination because of the kind of language she was using and because of what she represents. I mean, I suppose, like uh, uh, she comes from what you might term, I suppose, new age kind of gurudom. And <clears throat> that's not really what I want to talk about. But what I want to talk about is that when I spoke to her. I said, do you think, and you know, I didn't go so far as could you prove, but do you reckon that the Democratic Party would rather Trump won and lose than Bernie became the leader of the Democratic Party? In a roundabout way, roundabout way mate, she said, yes. She, the Democratic Party would rather that. And I guess that I don't need to ask you what the Labour Party's position would be on Jeremy, on Jeremy Corbyn or a comparable candidate. I'm inspired and interested in Adam Curtis, who I see as a kind of autodidactic kind of uh, Fisher-like figure in that his critiques are very populist. He's sort of quite caroming in his references. And also, I think he's very interested in the emotions that underwrite politics, as we've been discussing earlier. Like This comes down to what are we doing as people? What is your actual life? Where are you going? What's happening? And like... Uh, like I'm sort of even, and I'm, I guess I'm the same age as you, maybe older than you even. But like, like when you sort of talk about like there was a time where it's possible, I didn't go through those kind of filters, so I didn't experience like that type of uh, academia or those kind of educational institutes. So, so I don't have a memory of that, you know, like in my like oh, there was a time when it, you know, this has accelerated quickly, has got worse quickly, or is headed in a particular direction quickly. What I do obviously remember is like that these kind of charismatic managerial figures like Blair and Clinton that didn't come with a vision aside from, and this is sort of somewhat influenced, significantly influenced, I would say, by Kurt Mac, um, by Adam Curtis's thinking, that they don't like that at this point, no one's saying, we're going to change society. This is what we're going to do. This is what it's going to be like. Like you say, we are up for the fight with capitalism. Let's go. You know, like they're just saying, look, this is, is what it is. We'll just, we'll 
push the, the the trekkers pieces around on the board a little bit we'll do our best and stuff it was a total concession a capitulation the ideology is washed out it's dead at that point now there's a few things that i want to touch on about like you know if you, like the current center left i think has become dominated by authoritarianism and puritanism and is like a become bereft ideologically and like we you know when i look at see you talk about your reclaim the streets type days and i sort of drifted around on the periphery of their movements mostly because i kind of liked it i liked like i feel the vibe and everything i also sensed there was something important about it but i wasn't sort of embedded in groups that would you know i got some friends that knew the score on this kind of stuff and gradually did their best to teach me about it but i like the energy of it and um what I um, feel is that these kind of like the, the current sort of technocratic political ideals of the left are not going to deliver anything. And I also am doubtful, suspicious, cynical even about the possibility of the, uh, the institutions and systems that we currently have can ever deliver anything and and, and I, I sort of even i mean that like you know when you say sort of like we need to kick on with the labor party national executive and momentum and i don't know enough i'm not like you know i recognize people know a lot more than i do and put a lot more time and effort in than i do and i'm like i'm not trying to gainsay that but when i feel about the kind of um, emotional quality uh, the the energy that's going to be required for people like you know the willingness to sacrifice the willingness to come together the willingness to confront and indeed like you said like you know the willingness to overlook differences like you know you see i remember like years ago like you know i guess 5 years ago now seeing some sort of tommy robinson style thing kicking off in london like a sort of um, for those that don't know a kind of like a ethno nationalist populist proletariat type movement and when i sort of see them i feel like how can the left not get these people like how can you not get them how can you not get white working class people who are pissed off they're not earning enough money and they've got like shit jobs and they're being treated bad if you can't get if they're going right if they're heading right you that i blame you for not being able to get them like you know like the, the, the you know the fall of the red wall that people would rather vote for boris johnson that they would rather vote for trump i'm like well what you what's you where's your game at where's your game at and for me now i'm at the bottom like when, when i spoke to curtis about this he said like you know i was saying like you know at the moment like a a, a, a movement that would confront capitalist power is more likely to come out of the right than the left like, you know, and like, you know, like sort of an, when it comes to identity, sexuality, immigration, climate, like, you know, a long list of things. I'm like, oh, no, 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 not these guys. But when it comes to sort of verve and like a bit of um, mojo and a little bit of energy, I'm thinking like, you know, you know, like Curtis said, like, you know, look, it might it doesn't have to be the right. It might come out of. But like emerging from these sort of movement, emerging from this emotion, because like you know, ultimately, no, no one's really like, oh, well, you know, is it a boy or is it a girl? It's a right wing baby. It's a Tottenham <laughs> fan. You know, these all just, you know, what I mean, it's all just been inculcated and can just as easily, my prairies, my prairies, be stripped away. So, like on the edge of that, and I'm sure you've got loads and loads of things to pick up on that. I wanted to sort of say that. Don't you feel like that our energy ought be heading in the direction of, I don't know, sort of forms of anarchism, forms of devolution, new forms of confederacy, something that is vibrant and engaging emotionally and spiritually uh, that sort of um, 
makes the kind of that that the clerical necessity of the stinky brick clear up out the middle of the road less relevant sort of you know drive around it type thing yeah i totally do i would say again i mean i but i sort i sort of think both positions have to be understood as right at the same time like you, you can't avoid the stinky brick clear up and what you said is true i mean and how i would bring those things together is to say look we've learned one thing we've learned from the past 30 years is for the left in britain at least the only way you get a platform is by at least seriously challenging the leadership of the labor party because there's been people who think i mean i've been saying the stuff you've just said i mean i've been i've been written writing about you know how basically i mean you know the argument of my book sort of common ground and other stuff i've written over the years is really look liberal representative democracy has been broken since the 70s because nobody voted for this stuff basically like most you can go right back to the early 80s and say most of the people voting for thatcher they weren't voting for privatization and deregulation of the financial markets they thought they were voting they thought she was promising to take us back to the sort of their imagined traditional britain of the 50s but they didn't get what they were voting for most people who voted for blair were hoping he was going to restore social democracy and reverse thatcherism they didn't get that either so the whole that whole thing the whole thing's been broken since the mid 70s right um the thing is, you know, people like me have been banging on about that for 30 years, that we can't get a platform to say it. The only time we've come close to getting a platform is when, you know, we were able to use the Labour Party doing it. I mean, I was down on bended, I was literally in, you know, Parliament talking to advisors of Corbyn's, like while he was leader, and also while Ed was leader, actually, giving them the shame spiel, saying, listen, you've got to give a speech, and the speech has got to say this, look, this whole system of, of liberal representative democracy has been broken since the 70s. We know it has. We know it doesn't work. We've got to do something very different. And that is, and, and we don't even know what that is. You know, we would have to have a massive national conversation about what that different thing would be. And this isn't impossible. I mean, all over Latin America, in Latin America, you know, you've had radical governments in places like Bolivia, institute what they call a constituent assembly, where you really, you have a national process of saying, well, what would it mean to build new kinds of democratic institutions, ones that are more, as you say, more devolved, more participatory. They're not based on the sort of 18th century model of like choosing some guy who goes down to a big committee in London and you don't see him again for four years. <laughs> so it, that's all doable. But I mean, it was really a limitation even of sort of Corbynism that, you know, in the end, I mean, you know, I think Jeremy, you know, I love Jeremy Corbyn, but there was two limitations of, of Corbynism really in terms of things you've been talking about. One is in the end, he was a sort of child of Tony Benn. And Tony Benn, although he was, could be very critical of all these things, of all the kind of things we're talking about, he also ultimately believed that like Parliament could be the solution, that Parliament had this sort of destiny to be this democratic institution that had been struggled for since the 17th century. So I don't think Jeremy didn't really believe, as far as I could, could understand. He didn't really believe, like what you said. He saw, seemed to believe that ultimately, if you got a Labour government, they could do socialism which like a lot of people, including myself and some of the people around him were always saying, well, we know that's not true. Even if you get a Labour government, the only way you're going to be able to actually do some of the things we're going to want to do is by, you know, really tearing up the current model of, 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 uh, of institutional politics. So I think all that is completely true. And also, I mean, Jeremy wasn't very good at sort of channeling people's anger. I mean, this is partly mm. the thing you're, you're sort of talking about. And I, and I think it's probably... You know, it's a, it is a it is a sort of problem. You know, the issue of emotion in politics you've touched on, I think, is really sort of important. 
and it is really complicated and I think you know one of the th- one of the things that really appealed to a lot of the, his most ardent supporters about Jeremy, understandably, was that he represented this absolute decency, this complete sort of no bullshit. You know, it's true. I mean, it wouldn't you wouldn't need to change the system if if if, if all politicians were like him? You know, any system would work because he is genuinely a kind of saintly person. He like really means what he says and, and says what he means, etc. And that was what people liked about it. But in my experience, the kind of person who is no criticism of them, the kind of person who likes that, that's what they appeal to. That's that's they want that sort of image of decency and, mm. and truth seeking. Um, they're usually people, I mean, they're not, I was going to say sort of middle class, but they're not. Actually. I mean, a lot of um, I know a lot of people who work in the public sector on very low salaries who are sort of or think are like this. And and but and what they what they saw in Jeremy, as I always used to put it, they saw the local the headmaster that everyone loves everyone knows works a 60 hour week for the kids and and all that but that's a completely different group of people to the people you're talking about the sort of white working class you know i grew up in the northwest like in the 80s and you you can't you know when i'm talking to you my accent goes full london if i'm talking to somebody from lancashire or yorkshire it goes almost full north (laughs) um because i lived i grew up there and i've lived in london since 1990 but um you know, amongst those people, you need something quite different from a guy who's just going to stand up and say, look, we're going to do the decent thing. You need, if you're going to win over that constituency, as he rightly says, currently being won more by the right, you need someone who is going to tell them who are the bastards who are fucking them, excuse my language, and what you're going to do to them. That's what you've got to do. And Jeremy couldn't, Jeremy was no good at that. Jeremy couldn't do that. Um and un- unfortunately, but that is, you know, the political, I mean, you know, we have a political system, including the, the structures which were put in place by the sort of technocrats, people like Blair and Mandelson in the Labour Party in the 90s, and we still haven't been dismantled, really to make sure that people like that are kept out of politics. Mm. They don't get selected as MPs. You know, they might, they they do, where that isn't so much the case in, in the trade union movement. And I would point to like the recent election of Sharon Graham as the leader of Unite. The big, you know, with the second biggest union in the country, as really significant. I mean, she is basically a syndicalist. I mean, she's she's she her politics are, you know, I mean, she's very, you know, unite supports the Labour Party and talks of left in the Labour Party, but her politics are often described as syndicalist, meaning they're effectively sort of anarchist. You know, they're very skeptical about the state. They're very skeptical about sort of representative structures. And I think, um, I mean, for me, one ground for optimism, as I've seen, I mean, there's all kinds of problems with the union movement always, but the way they've shifted over the past 20 years is really, really dramatic. But I think you're absolutely right. I mean, you're absolutely right. Um, but one of, I mean, one of the big challenges for us is building a coalition on the left that can include the kind of people who, you know, they, they're, they were attracted to Corbyn's quiet decency yeah. and people who can do that kind of firebrand politics, who can kind of speak to people on the left. Because the, the, one of the advantages the right have got is their equivalent of the people who like Corbyn's quiet decency. They're kind of, you know, they're sort of relatively, uh, are sort of, you know, relatively liberal Tories, the sort of people who support, uh, you know, supporting people like Cameron. Uh, the thing is, those people, for the most part, are capable of cynically endorsing a figure like a Trump or a Johnson, you know, when they recognise it's in their interests. Right. You know, they're capable of making that, they're much more practised because they're much more cynical. They make that calculation occasionally. Now, this is what happened with the Republicans in the States. You know, the Republican Party 
made the calculation well we need it yeah you need a trump at the moment does it win these people over whereas i think on the you know on the left you know habitually it's a cliche people tend to be quite moralistic people tend to you know dislike kind of radical differences in style and presentation and a lot of people um and i think we do but i think strategically I think right now, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, we absolutely need some sort of leadership on the left and we need, and there are people who could do it if they could be bothered. I mean, in terms of personality and manner, I mean, Angela Rayner, we've got no illusions about her politics, but, you know, she's she's a Northern woman who left school at 16. You know, if she wanted to start stand up and start giving speeches sort of channeling the class anger of the white working class in Britain she could do it immediately and she could win the leadership of the Labour Party and probably become Prime Minister to be honest so there are people who could do it um but of course I mean one of the issues and this is an issue with Ed when you know when Ed was leader it's issue with lots of people I mean one of the issues is is understandably you know people get scared I mean, it's quite easy for us, to, people like you and me, to sort of sit on the sidelines and say, oh, why don't you do this? I mean, anecdotally, I mean, you always hear if if any politician looks like they're likely to start doing that and likely to start getting some traction. Well, I mean, what I, don't, I can't say for sure this is definitely true, but if they'll get a call from Murdoch and Murdoch will just tell them, well, make your life's family a misery if you carry on like this, not just yours, your family's life will be made a misery. And people get scared. So, and it's partly for that reason why we need not just politicians and leaders, you know, we need a strong movement that can back these people up. We need a whole, you know, we need to keep building a real culture which, in which, you know, people like, the people we would like to be our leaders can be supported to take those kinds of steps. Mm. Yes. I think a lot about adjacent systems. I think about when, you know, Mark was coining phrases like acid communism and when you hear sort of like, you know, luxury communism and like people, I know these are just linguistic tricks at this point, but the idea of, uh, I, I think of libidinization of the, you know, like it feels to me that broadly the sphere of politics is kept kind of boring as a sort of yeah. a preservation yeah. of the space to keep it kind of exclusive and it's dull and it's these tedious people saying these dumb things. And I think, you know, and Adam Curtis thinks, and I'm sure you do, well, you'll tell me, like uh, like that there's still a sort of a hangover from the demagogic 20th century kind of, right, you know, what happens if we really bring folk energy into a political <laughs> movement and get some damn good badges and get people properly riled up into this? Where does that take us? You know, like there's a sort of um no let's just calm this shit right down type of attitude and um you know i guess that because i feel you that we you know in a sense when it comes to running things you do like yeah avuncular gentle considered devoted sagacious gentle folk like corbyn is more what you want than fierce velociraptors fire breathing folk you know but like um in a way like uh, isn't it i think it's around the cuban revolution it's like that you know like um what we you know what do you what's the first thing you should do after a revolution kill the leaders because like immediately afterwards you need now a different set of principles yeah, and values yeah, yeah, yeah. immediately than these people that you need to sort of stir things up and but empower people and encourage and embolden folk um 
but like you know it, it, when i try to contemplate the potential reality the, the utilizing of technology to serve ordinary people the identification of where real power currently is and how would you ever go about breaking that up and breaking it down without a potent centralized state how do you tackle ideas like uh, the the allegiance of the military and the police force how do you uh, gain the faith and trust of as a varied a culturally varied communities as diverse as the white working class um, muslim folk you know that for long so, so long been set upon one another and and, and now that they culture war is being amplified to a kind of or barely tenable level it's in a, in a way it kind of the, i feel like there's a sort of a force field around the the, the conversation even like i it feels to me that it, there's i would be more excited about setting up alternative systems rather than like sort of the long game of finding someone you know and i know that this is obviously going to be odds with you because you're a car carrying lifelong sort of labor member and many of the people that get, that took the time to educate me are comparable to you my mate john rogers my, like various like friends of mine that are like you know sort of student movement folk that then became union folk and all of that you know i've I don't have no faith that you can you can use the yeah you know, the master's tools to dismantle the master's house. That's sort of how I feel about it. Well, I think you just have to try everything. I mean, I, I'm not against building. I've always been in favour of also building alternative systems. I mean, my view of this since I was a teenager is like, well, why wouldn't you do both? I mean, I was very influenced by kind of anarchist thought even as a teenager. But my view was always, well, why? All right, fine. Yeah, let's build build co-ops, build squat, you know, squat squat whole towns you know take over stuff create autonomous zones but why not also at the same time as long as it's there yeah. you know it doesn't cost you anything to get a labor, i mean it does cost you it costs you a few quid to get a labor party membership card you know and vote for the candidates who are going to do you the least damage you know if they if they get in i don't i just don't think those are necessary things you have to choose between right so I, I don't think I absolutely I've never believed that like parliamentary politics or something like that is, is the solution is an exhaustive solution. Mm. I just think you, you have to work by any means necessary mm. and by every by every means that's available to you. And I think that is really um, and I think, you know, and this I mean, when I'm talking to when I'm talking to Labour Party people, what I'm always saying to them is you've got to be completely cynical about the Labour Party. Just use use it as a way to beat our enemies when the opportunity presents itself. Otherwise, go do something else. When that opportunity doesn't present itself so i completely agree that the idea ultimate and, and ultimately indeed you know what is the like the labor the point that you know the, the all the labor party is ever capable of doing is administering some sort of ameliorative reforms to people you know it's, mm. a, it's, a, it's, it's just making things a little bit better for people you know the worst off the thing is i always think we have a moral duty to to do that if we can you know because there are people who who need ameliorative reforms right now you know there are people for whom you know the rate of child benefit is is you know yeah. whether it's you know five quid or ten quid yeah. in a given week is, is a matter of life and death yeah. but for me one of the great mistakes which is made by people again and again and again is to think you have to choose between that attitude and also being a revolutionary, also saying, look, ultimately, we want to take every opportunity we can to like, build up democratic forces and you know, destroy, you know, as much as possible of, of the sort of capitalist institutions. So to me, you have to have an attitude where you're doing all of those things at the same time, I think. You're trying to do as much as you can at the same time. I think that issue of libidinal energy, I think it is really important. I think it is, you know, you have to have a sort of... Um, 
you do you do have to have a sort of exciting vision of what the future is and what you can do for people but for my my sort of line on this which is you know controversial in a lot of circles though is that what the left has to do always what progressive forces have to do and this is true whether you think of yourself as an anarchist or a sort of moderate social democrat is you've got to be willing to appeal to people to a certain extent at the level of their interests You've got to be able to say to people, look, why you should do this, because you will actually be better off if you do that. I mean, it's the same and not in now people hear that and what they think is, and that sounds boring. It's unesthetic. It's uninspiring. That's almost like a right wing idea because you're telling people Mm. to be selfish. But my approach is no. The whole point about the left is to raise people's level of aspiration is to say to people, look, The right can make you better off in a really simplistic, crude way, if you're lucky, some of you. It'll just make you able to buy some more shit. Now, the left can make you better off in a much more fundamental way. You'll be happier. You'll be freer. You'll be safer. You'll be all, you know, if you you implement, you know, if you do what we say. No, I think, and I think, um, I think it's, I think it's a reluctance Part of the problem, and it's a problem with, it's certainly a historic problem with the British left, and it's a problem with Corbynism, actually, is that we tend not to use that kind of language. We tend to always, always use this sort of moral language. I mean, it was the thing that always frustrated me about Jeremy. You know, the, you know, the, the example I always give, which is a sort of made-up example, it's not based on any real thing that happened, is if, if Jeremy was talking about homelessness, you would say it's a moral outrage that there's all these homeless people, that people are homeless, and we should do something about it. Which I agree it is. I agree it is. But if it's that's not what gets most... There's only a tiny group of people in the country who that's what really gets them emotionally, is that sense of moral outrage. Yeah. There's be a much bigger group of people, I think, you could get to if you say, look, why are those people on the streets? Because some greedy bastards have got all the houses and they're not sharing them with, any, with anybody. You know, because because a few hundred property developers are absolute parasites who control, you know, a huge proportion of the housing market. That's the problem, and we're going to get them. And to me... Now that is that is that is talking not on a moral level, but at the but at the level of think of understanding politics in terms of conflicting interests. Yes. But it's also to me that also that has a kind of libidinal charge. Like you're talking yeah. about has a kind of emotional charge for people because it part and partly because it's just telling the truth. Actually, partly it's just, it's just you know, talking about the situation as it really is. And yeah. I think there's there's a difference between I think a big problem for a lot of the left is that rather than talking in terms of interest, it either turns in talks in terms of morality or it talks in terms of identity like you, you know you should do you know the um and it, you know and it, i mean indeed this is what happened during the corbyn years like for a large number of people like being a supporter of jeremy corbyn being a member of the labor party became a part of their identity it was like mm. a, it was a thing that they were and so when jeremy stopped being leader of the labor party they got really upset and they all left and now they're all sort of miserable and I feel like it's not, it's just, to me, that's just a miss. That's not a useful conception of thinking, for thinking about it, that think about it in terms of identity think, or thinking about it in terms of morality. Sometimes those things are important and sometimes you can't get away from those things. But you've always got to be thinking about politics, I think, in terms of the competition between interests in a way which doesn't foreclose, like thinking in utopian terms or radical terms. I mean, the idea of, you know, acid communism you know, or, or fully automated luxury communism, whatever, it, it is partly about trying to get people to think, look, we could all be having a much nicer life. We could all be having a much freer life. We could all be having more of the things that we want. Right. And... um. 
I think that's the way of putting it, really, that we could all be having more of the things that we want. Like rather than telling people that what they want is wrong. wrong. Yeah. And rather than yeah. telling people, you know, you should want something different. Yeah. Tell people that what you want is fine, but you will never get it. You will only ever get a tiny crumbs of what you want from capitalists and from their agents in the state. You know, because the whole way in which capitalism is set up is to keep making us to keep making us chase after stuff you know, that won't make us happy if we get it and we won't get most of it anyway. And I think the, the message of the left, to some extent, the progressive message always has to be, look, you know, we need to, if we all work together, if we all cooperate, then actually we will get more of what we want than if we just sit around, knock, you know, if we keep running around competing with each other, which is what they want us to do. Someone's coming in your door, mate. Is it an animal or a person? <laughs> I think it's a... a... It was an animal, and the person has shut the door. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't tell. I could only see the door moving, and it was, it was yeah. powerful <laughs> to, to <laughs> observe the scenery come to life around you. Uh, it's amazing to talk to you, Jeremy. Thank you very much. I, I really value being able to express my emotional reaction to culture and politics with you and for you to to have the aid and privilege of your um, experience and education around it because um, the thing I'll take mostly from this conversation I think will be that you know yeah do both do both and like you know where are you most fit where do you fit in most where does your type of character your inclination fit most do you want to be involved in innovation and change do you want to be involved in activism do you have the uh, the stones to sort of sit and gruelingly get through the challenges that bureaucracy presents to, to us and you know there's loads of other stuff I'd like to inquire of you, but like, uh, because, but I've got to do another thing, and you, the the people and animals of your household are <laughs> turning on you even as we speak. Because like you know, I've like got personal gripes about how where I felt most of the um, vitriol was coming from when I put my head above the parapet, and it weren't the right. It was and like and when it was the sure. left, you know, and like uh, obviously, and like um like and as well like the difference when you're in america like russell brand has written this book revolution what's your book about well i was just trying to put forward <laughs> ideas about how you like, you could dismantle all the state and stuff just in a popular colloquial way that people go well that's well done that's great you know, they, <laughs> don't take the, like the machine it's such a powerful and unfragile what they you could tell them whatever you want i mean i've always thought it amazing culturally that you can have movies like the matrix or legoland that sort of spell out to you look what your life is that's 20 pounds <laughs> you know like it doesn't it doesn't balk at sharing it with you it can be the story of and i think this is yeah sort of again mark fisher territory the story of revolution and the man it can all all these tropes can just be tried out just fearlessly it's terror i mean i'm reading like that guy darren allen do you know him at the moment he sort of like writes a lot about sort of anarchism he's written a good book 33 myths on the system i'm just trying to bring in as much stuff as i can trying to understand the things that i can understand from as many sources i can till i and i'm trying to think like where where's the gaps where can this thing this message get through and what indiv what individually and collectively how can how can we participate in this what are our strengths recognizing that what you started this with is this ain't gonna like you can't like you know if you you take living like you know or formerly like saintly figures like gandhi and you look at them long enough oh he did this he done that oh martin luther king he did this he did that you know like so it's like that in a way what that points to is um you know the requirement for a sort of a collective senius is the term i recently learned rather than individual genius you know yeah 
Well, I, I completely agree. Oh, thanks. All right, mate. Well, thanks. That was very educational and uh, enjoyable for me. I hope we get to chat again soon. And uh, I'll talk about your your book, Hedge Money Now, How Big Tech and Wall Street Won the World. I wish I had time to dive deeper into that as well, but hopefully we'll talk again. Yeah, don't worry about it. <laughs> that was really fun. That was really fun, man. Yeah, thanks a lot. Thank you, Jeremy. And um, yeah, it, it, uh, sorry for your loss in Mark Fisher, a person that you knew. But what I knew about him is that, that he was for real. And like a, a, he was like one of the only people that just sort of like put himself out there when I was like and was sort of said stuff that made me feel validated and heard and made me want to be better it made me want to be better yeah well it's yeah it was a really important moment I mean he was really inspired by your you know interventions and yeah he did get a lot of he did get a lot of flack he did get a lot of flack for defending you but I always supported him and we always we wrote a little thing to we we, we issued a joint statement at one point about the Russell Brand affair so, so yeah. because I, we issued a joint statement like supporting you. Oh wow, thank you. Because that was, um, yeah. What well, I mean, I complete. I mean, I completely agree. I completely agreed with it. I wonder where you get in a sense. I was thinking about this just yesterday. There are a lot of you know people that have that. You know, we all grew up in this system and we all bear its scars. And there are some people that have this kind of glory impulse. And if like people are trying to sort of work with that energy and trying to sort of how can this be good somehow? While of course it is conflicted, of course there is individual ego, of course it is. But if you're gonna, there's another thing we're banning. Then like, well that's a that's a powerful source that you've just cut yourself off from right there. You know, like the people that there are some people that have a kind of a like I don't know, a, it's a resource I think you know. And I yeah, I, what, I, what I'm saying is I appreciate your support and being able to see what i was you know where i was what i was reaching for oh well it's fine it's, it's cool <laughs> thanks man well take it easy good luck in there yeah you too Lots of take love. care see you mate bye -bye. Bye -bye. well i hope you enjoyed that conversation between me and jeremy gilbert why don't you um get jeremy's book when it comes out hegemony now Serenity Now, Serenity Now. Hegemony Now, How Big Tech and the Wall Street Won the World. That's out next year. Just get your head ready. Look back at some of his old books, like uh, 21st Century Socialism. That'd be good. And educate yourself about Mark Fisher. Listen to that audio book that I'd done. Thanks for, um, well, just, you know, you know everything, really. Follow me on social media if you have the time and inclination. Remember... I'm doing a tour. I think there's a sort of, you might get some returns. It's sold out, but you might be able to get in somewhere. Have a look at my website or have a look at Ticketmaster where I think there are tickets. I'm sorry that it's a centralized, um, you know, tech giant. What do you do, man? And my podcast, uh, Above the Noise, in which me and Jen do a guided meditation, that's also on Luminary. There's new guided meditations every Wednesday, so go over to that. Also sign up to my mailing list on russellbrand.com to get regular bulletins about what I'm reading and what I'm into so you know what I'm doing, you know? If you enjoyed this, why don't you listen to our recent episode with Luke Kemp? Why Luke Kemp? He's like an anarchist. He's like an anarchist. And, well. um, what about Karen Ross? Yeah, that would be good too. What about that woman that was an anarchist? Professor Ruth Kinner. Well I done remembering the name. Yeah. <laughs> I also wasn't sure what the conversation would be like because it's only just happened. Right. It's just happened, isn't it? Yeah. All right. Well done, Jen. Right. I think that's, I think by your own standards, <laughs> that's good work. <laughs> by the standard of maybe even if you could get a maquette monkey. Oh, they're the worst <laughs> ones. They're the ugliest. Are they no baboons? They're both ugly. Oh, sorry. Well, you're very well. <laughs> sorry. I would like to concur with the opinion of old restaurant woman and say how 
that you're like a beautiful doll. Oh, it sounds weird when you say it. Well, there you go. That's the mountain <laughs> of the world, it? You said it was the best mountain of your life. Yeah, but that's because it was. Well, how did she say it? She had a really soft voice. Also, she looked great. She was really interesting looking. So I took it as Hold an extra compliment. Wait a minute, Jen. There's a mirror in here and I can see what I look like. <laughs> it's tippity top. There's no reflection on you. Well, my mirror's a reflection of me and it's the only information I'm getting around here. I told you you looked nice last week. Mm, Do you remember? I don't actually Remember care. I said that? I don't think so. I'd like records of that. Look, let's go. Let's just go, Jen. We've got a meditation podcast to record. Thank you very much for listening to Under the Skin from Luminary with me, Russell Brand. I don't remember who produced the show. I just don't remember. <laughs> 